0: So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be.
1: In the past year, the crypto industry has had a lot thrown at it and it has and will survive. More than that, it will be stronger for it. I've always loved Andreas's sewer rat analogy because open source systems like Bitcoin enjoy an evolutionary benefit from constantly grappling with their challenges. When flaws are found, the system self-corrects and ultimately improves. But how effectively, how efficiently that evolutionary process occurs and what it takes to optimize it is an open question. And the answer depends on all of you. How well can this community recognize, embrace, and learn from its mistakes? A key part of doing that is to focus on what matters. And in my mind, what matters are human beings. The great promise of this technology that attracted me to it 10 years ago was that it established a decentralized governance system that would enable collaborative, collective action, allowing people to exchange value amongst themselves, and to take charge of their lives and assets as individuals without the intermediation and control of centralized institutions in the middle. Looking at the rubble from last year's market earthquakes, the billions that were lost, or rather stolen from individuals by centralized institutions, It feels as if the industry has lost its way. This is not to say at all that the pursuit of profits is bad. History has shown that market systems, amongst really a seriously bad bunch of options, are the most effective way of society allocating resources. But this market-led optimization, the evolution of the sewer rat, if you will, needs institutions that enable the free flow of information dialogue, and collective resolution of our failures so that better decisions can be made once mistakes happen. This might sound self-serving, but it needs trusted media organizations like CoinDesk, and it needs convenings like this one in which people can come together and talk about what matters to move the process forward. It's in that spirit, one of reviewing past errors in the light of what humans need, that this community gathers here in Austin for Consensus 2023. The consensus community is very broad. It includes Bitcoin maxis, Ethereum visionaries. It's got developers of all the other layer ones and layer twos and related protocols. It includes founders of startups working on a dizzying array of applications. It involves creators from self-made street artists to big name celebrities and studios to brands and marketing executives. It also involves investors, which includes sophisticated degen DeFi traders and Silicon Valley's VCs, but also mum and pop first-time dabblers, as well as hundred-year-old TradFi institutions. And it comprises all of the policymakers, regulators, lobbyists, and everyone else who's trying to figure out how the law should treat this nascent industry. At Consensus 2023, we're calling on every one of these players to come together, recognize their mistakes confront their differences, and where possible, find common ground. That's behind 11 special workshops, as well as the Pulse survey that we're asking all of you to uh, get onto your app and answer the questions of, all of which will inform our inaugural Consensus at Consensus report to be published a month from now. With the global economy at a turning point, and with technologies such as AI pointing to an unprecedented disruption to our way of life, This industry and its decentralized governance are vital to our future. So we need the crypto community to be as broad and inclusive as possible and to engage in constructive debate, dialogue, and thoughtful compromise. That's consensus for you. So please, please, become part of that community. Get involved. Now, before we kick off with a session that goes to the heart of this question about what really matters, I need to thank some people. First of all, actually, you. Thank you for coming here. It's you that makes this happen, and consensus really ticks with all of your participation. Next, I want to thank our 216 sponsors, especially our four five-block sponsors, Filecoin Foundation, Hedera, Stellar Development Foundation, and TronDAO. Without our sponsor's support, this extravaganza would not be possible. And a special thank you to Austin Mayor Kirk Watson and the entire team at Visit Austin. And last but not least, I want to thank my incredible colleagues at Coindesk and our support staff who have put an unfathomable amount of work into this behemoth of an event. So thank you so much. I'm in awe of all of you. So, okay, where was I? We're talking about what matters, right? Back to basics. Why are we here at all? There's something soberingly constructive about a bear market. It's a chance to reflect on what went wrong, but even more, to explore why are we are here? What are we doing? What are the essential things that we need to be focused on? So drawing on that why we're here theme and in the spirit of seeking out OGs who can help explore and reflect on 10 years of Coindesk coverage of this industry, we're kicking it off with this uh, a mainstream, main stage program with three people who've been involved in this for quite some time, all of them in different ways, are focused on unlocking the core promises of this technology for society. Please welcome Caitlin Long, Eric Voorhees, and Neha Narula. For those of you who've been involved in this for a while, these people really do not uh, require any introduction, but as a matter of, of, of course, we'll do it. So why don't we just quickly run down the line and say who you are and what you do.
2: Caitlin Long, founder and CEO, of Custodia Bank, Wall Street background, been in Bitcoin since 2012.
0: Hi, I'm Nehanarula. I am the director of the Digital Currency Initiative, which is based at the MIT Media Lab, and I've been in the cryptocurrency space since 2015.
3: Hello, everyone. Eric Voorhees, founder of ShapeShift, former CEO of ShapeShift, until I fired myself a little over a year and a half ago, and been in the crypto world since May of 2011.
1: So actually, Eric, I'm gonna to go to you first. You were one of the first people I had contact with when I started covering Bitcoin in 2013. Um, clearly, it was clear to me then and it's clear to me now that, that this was something that you felt very passionate about from a, from a freedom perspective, from a liberty perspective. Um, why don't you just break that down for us? Like what, what, what really mattered to you uh, about Bitcoin and, and, and this, the spirit of this technology?
3: So I lived through the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. Uh, this was a little, you know, a year after I graduated from college, and I got very interested in in money and finance and how that all works, and uh, came to the conclusion, you know, after a lot of reading and observation, that um, perhaps if you want to have a, a market economy, uh, money itself should not be centrally planned or controlled. That that was more like what you'd expect in Soviet Russia or China or something, but. In a market capitalist system, you should have a money that is of the market, not of government. And that was just like a, an obvious thing to me. But um, I didn't know what the solution would be because I was a fan of gold as money. But um, gold has a problem, which is that it is physical and has to be custodied somewhere. So any private company that tries to build a gold-based money system is always going to be at the behest of the government, of the territory in which that gold is warehoused. So I was kind of stuck and I didn't really know how that would get solved. And then uh, I learned about Bitcoin in 2011. And after a little initial skepticism, upon realizing that the thing can't be turned off, that you can't shut it down, that it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't have this like custody issue, that that was an incredibly powerful idea. And so um, totally fell in love with it and it's been my, uh, my hobby and passion and career ever since.
1: So, Neha, um, full disclosure, I work with Neha at MIT, the, the Digital Currency Initiative, uh, for a number of years, and we did some incredible stuff. And over that time, though, you know, the evolution of the DCI and its purpose has sort of landed in somewhere now, a lot of focus on, on public money, on, on the idea of the, using this technology to perfect money. So I'm lucky like to like, maybe reflect on what, what Eric was saying. He's talking about money being of the market and being of the people you, know, we, you and I had a conversation recently about what do we mean by public money, and therefore, you know, maybe you can explain a little bit about what Project Hamilton is about. But these principles of the yeah, public
0: definitely. Uh, and we've had some amazing people come through the digital currency initiative, including yourself, Michael. So uh, it, was it was fun to have you a colleague, have you as a colleague for many years. So I think, you know, I don't know what the optimal design. For money is. I think that this is still an open question, and this is a many centuries long experiment that we are running and that we are continually learning and evolving, especially as technology changes and certain things become possible that were not possible before, like the ability to run a decentralized, digitally settling currency network. That was not possible before. It was a really seriously new technology that enabled something different. Similarly, the ability to settle millions or tens of millions of transactions per second, that was something that was just not physically possible in the analog world before we invented computers and high-speed systems. So as technology changes, what we can do with money and how we can design it changes. Now, the past Sort of, you know, several decades or centuries has been an experiment with public and private money. And I respect Eric's opinion. I don't know what the right Future design of money is going to be, but what I've seen so far is that it has been a partnership between public and private money that has been very important. And so, when I started getting into this technology in 2015, I went down a slightly different path, but also started learning a lot about the banking system and how central banks worked and fractional reserve banking and uh, you know how interest rates are set. And it just it was amazing. And I realize that the design space here is wide open. We have the opportunity to experiment and create new designs. And so the designs we're currently experimenting with are how can this public-private money work better in partnership and in collaboration. And so you alluded to a collaboration we had with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. It was a technology uh, research project where we were examining, okay, let's say that we wanted to think about issuing digital money. The Federal Reserve wanted to think about issuing digital money. What would that even look like from a technology perspective? What are the design parameters? And that's what we worked on. We came up with a design inspired by a lot of ideas from the cryptocurrency world, but not exactly built on a blockchain or a distributed ledger or anything like that, because it is a centralized system. But thinking very carefully about how can this interact with private money in a new and innovative way. And I I think that's so important. The world we live in now, the fact of the matter, the last, I don't know, hundred transactions I did were probably in public money, not in cryptocurrencies. So I think we need to figure out how to bring sovereign money into the 21st century as well.
1: One of the things that you said we discussed this um, a little while back um, was if you're going to have money that is truly public, right? think about what cash is, It's you don't have to ask the banknote for permission mm-hmm. to send it to somebody else, right? But every single app that we have, most of the apps at least, are built on these structures that you that's what you do. You have to give up some data, some PII, your email address, and that gives you access to that. So maybe talk to that as well. as a Yeah, person. I think this
0: is so important. And I was actually just looking at the Satoshi white paper again recently. And, you know, it, Satoshi talks about peer-to-peer electronic cash and getting rid of an intermediary. And really, you know, cash is such an inspiration, I think, for the roots of cryptocurrency. Your $20 bill, you don't need to sign up for an account. You don't need to have a fancy mobile device. You don't need to install an app on your phone. You don't have to show anyone your ID. You don't even have to be connected to the internet. You can transact in cash whenever you want. No one can stop you. No one eavesdrops on that transaction. There isn't a data trail created by that transaction. And to me, that's a real inspiration for what we should be trying to do with our digital systems, and we are not there yet. We are nowhere near there yet. But I hope that we can get closer and closer and closer. That's what we're trying to do: is think about cash and the properties of cash and bring that into the public money world.
1: Now, Caitlin, you, you've, um, you know, been, uh, likewise been in this space for some time, but your journey is is quite interesting because you, you know, were a fairly senior person at Morgan Stanley. You have this Wall Street background, and that is. I'm sure quite informed the way you've looked at this space, and now you've know you you've, you've gone through a number of pivots and you, you're really trying to build um, you know, a new form of digital money and you're looking to get uh, licensing from the, from the Fed, which of course is <laughs> a little bit of a challenge, and we'll talk about that tomorrow, but I think what I'd like to get from you is just that perspective, right? Your, your journey from Wall Street in, into, into this moment and, and how that helped to inform your take on what matters.
2: Well, like Eric, in the very beginning, I was skeptical, and uh, when you go down the rabbit hole, most of us never came back out, (laughs) and uh, that that was certainly me, Um, but I had to keep my head down, and it was, like Eric, the 2008 financial crisis that got me very curious about money, and I was working in the belly of the beast and didn't fully grasp at the time because the swim lanes that that they have you in working in these big banks are so specialized and generally so narrow, you have to be a curious person to pop your head up and start figuring out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. And it was a contradiction that then Secretary of the Treasury Tim Geithner said a couple of weeks after the 2008 crash, he said interest rates had contributed to the crash by being too low. And then two weeks later, I heard him arguing that the Fed should lower interest rates even still. And that was, of course, a contradiction, and that got me down the whole alternative economic school of thought rabbit hole, realizing we all had to unlearn what we learned in school, because that's not how the world really worked. Uh, And then ultimately, through those circles, found Bitcoin. Um, But I had to keep my head down in those early years, for sure, because I didn't know... How And I saw what was happening at the big banks also. They were firing people who were involved um, with digital assets. Uh, but then I stuck, it, stuck my head up in 2014, and the chief technology officer of Morgan Stanley called me because I was a managing director running a business, the proverbial gray hair. And on the internal forum, pretty much everybody was very junior. Uh, and, uh, and so he called me and said, get up here and tell me what this thing is. Uh, and it was great working with him because he remained a skeptic. To my knowledge, he still is a skeptic. But boy, did he help me understand uh, the, 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 the big issues with how the traditional financial system was going to look at it. I think most of the people in traditional finance don't understand that the ledger systems that our traditional financial system run on, both in the banking system and in the security system, are not honest ledgers. And it, it, this is a really simple concept. All we really want is an honest ledger, because if we have an honest ledger, then the fruits of our labor can be saved in a way that someone else is not stealing it.
1: That's it's a very powerful idea. I mean, I, I know when I went down the rabbit hole, that was a key point, and then understanding that that lay at the heart of everything, right? yes. That ledgers, this, this very boring function, this accounting function that we've, we take for granted, has throughout history been performed by an accountant or a group yeah. that, that you had to trust, right? And this idea that now the record-keeping function could be dispersed and therefore kept honest, I think is a fascinating idea. All right, let right, one of the things that you were just talking about, the financial crisis, so both, you know, we, we mentioned this has come up, and to me too, it was like a, a very important moment of seeing the value of this technology through the lens of what we'd been through. I spent much of my time covering the financial crisis as a, as a journalist at the Wall Street Journal. And so I'm looking now, you know, 2022. And, and really, I mean, obviously this, this has been more than just a crypto crisis. We've seen a banking crisis emerge. But let's just look at crypto and, you know, the implosion, the contagion, the, the counterparty risk. It all feels pretty familiar, right? <laughs> yep. So what's going on here? Like how did this industry not learn from those lessons, and is essentially repeating the same mistakes of of that 2008 calamity. And how do we get beyond this? I'm going to throw the question to all three of you, but Caitlin, I think you're probably the best person to start it.
2: Well, I think we need to stick with first principles, which is that Satoshi created money that's no one's counterparty risk. It's not issued by anyone. It organically has been created by all of us users of the network, and therefore there is no centralized point of failure. And what happened with all the fraud, and there has been so much of it, and it all just needs to be burned down. Even the hardest core libertarians among us would probably support that when fraud occurs, it is an affront to your property rights. And boy, did that happen in spades. And obviously, there was uh, a lot of misinformation uh, about claiming decentralization by institutions that truly were centralized. And they picked up on the powerful themes, but they didn't live the first principles. And I think that's so interesting. Jesse Powell has talked about dealing with intermediaries where the people have been in this industry for a long time. In each of these bull markets, and I'd be curious for both of you whether you agree, in each of these bull markets, we've seen scammers. And they tend to be short-term people who just appear in the bull market, pick up something, build up something pretty fast, and then oftentimes it burns out in in a spectacular flame out. And that, in fact, actually, the folks who've been around Who've, ha- who've proven that they live by the first principles, whether they're building a centralized business or not, um, that, 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 that that tends to be the place where you should probably, if you have to trust someone, place your trust. But I would be the first, and I know uh, certainly uh, uh, my, the co-panelists I think would agree to say that you shouldn't ever trust anyone. And that literally trust the math, trust the encryption, trust the code, uh, that that's the first principle that we should all be living by. And, and those of us who did live by it just whistled past the graveyard of the spectacular flame-outs.
1: I wanna to get to that, uh, can you try, should you just trust math or trust people, and now I'm gonna throw that to you in a moment, but I wanna to go to Eric beforehand. Um, this first principles idea, you talked about firing yourself recently, right? And so you know, what strikes me as interesting about that is that we have a system you know, one that is essentially funded by venture capitalists that has these 100x return demands on it that feeds into the same Wall Street system because ultimately everybody's looking for an exit that is inherently driving us toward this profit maximalization, centralization. thing. The instinct in that model is not to do what you did to, to fire yourself and create because it won't get to that goal. So what do you need to do to be able to sort of look beyond that pressure and and get to what Caitlin was talking about, these first principles of a decentralized
3: structure. There's nothing wrong with with people trying to seek 100X returns on various projects. I think what's important about the crypto industry is that failure is permitted. Like this is what makes it different than the traditional financial industry where failure is um, prevented. And the institutions which fail the biggest are enshrined and protected and given longevity. Thank goodness that we still have a semblance of a free market in this industry. FTX is gone, right? They, they up, they defrauded people of billions of dollars, and they're gone. That's healthy. And so while it was painful short-term, um, we should look at this as a sign of health. In the, and, and right now, with this like, banking crisis, these banks that are failing are often getting propped up yeah. They have implicit or explicit guarantees from the Federal Reserve or Treasury. And um, what are the second-order effects of this, right? You, you, build up, you build up the risk, and you reward the bad actors, and you create like this brittle system that is the very opposite of the dynamism that, that capitalism is supposed to bring. So um, when you see failure in the crypto world, realize that that is an indication of an actual market, and to appreciate that because it's kind of a rare thing these days. So on that note, I'm going to ask you a different question
1: because you used a phrase that I thought was a colorful one to describe the kind of systems that were being built during the boom year of last year and previously. You described them as token casinos. And it struck me as really important because the thing that I felt was problematic was that we were just speculating on this number go up, right? This idea was tokens themselves and the the upward momentum of them was the thing. Like, where was the underlying value, the underlying yield, the return? We were getting way ahead of ourselves, right? Um, And so maybe just reflect on that. How do we get back and maybe, you know, are we just just too early? Like, I mean, can we just build this stuff so that it works and actually delivers some value before we, you know, start, start creating the next token casino?
0: Yeah, I I want to echo what Eric said. I think it's important to make sure that things can fail, that people can experiment and try things, and then if it doesn't work, they fail, and they go away, and we learn from those lessons. And you said earlier that crypto was repeating the same mistakes of traditional finance. I mean, the phrase I've heard used is, actually, crypto is speedrunning the entire history of (laughs) traditional finance in, like, a very compressed amount of time, Mm. repeating all those same mistakes, but hopefully learning something from them and learning enough to create something different. That is, that is the hope that we do that. We don't just repeat the same mistakes. Or, or you know, We make new ones and we build upon that and we create new structures that can do things better. However, I think in order for that to happen, the incentives have to be lined up to create actual value. And that means value for people and value for businesses and not speculative, not real value, not bubble value. Bubbles certainly have their place, but I think what happened for a long time was that there was this sort of mania, and there there was a lot of money being pumped into a lot of stuff that just really made no sense. It made zero sense. Uh, When you make it so that it is very easy to create your own token out of nowhere and then sell that to people and collect money, guess what? Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, People are gonna do just that. They're gonna do that, because why not? It's free money, it's literally free money. If there's no check on that, then they will do that over and over and over and over again. And so we ended up in a system where that happened. I think some people would say, this is what regulations are supposed to stop from happening. I think Eric would say, these things had no value, the market should have sorted it out, and you know these things should have failed if there really was no value there, it might take a while. Whatever sort of strategy you espouse, um, it happened. And I think it took a lot of energy, a lot of really smart people, and moved them into a world where they were focused on finding the next sort of bubble and implementing that bubble and selling that bubble to people instead of working on the really important infrastructure. And I I don't know how to fix that problem. I I don't think you can sort of centrally plan incentives. That's not how the world works. But I think that is a little bit of what happened, and it's really unfortunate. And I think it set us back.
3: Can I jump in on that? Uh, So I'll take a slightly different view on this. I think think speculative bubbles are actually really good. I think speculative bubbles are natural. They definitely happen. They tend to occur whenever there's some kind of groundbreaking technology, and you get this huge swell of interest in capital and labor and talent, and a bunch of it blows up. This is a pattern that's been repeated throughout history. But that process is also what creates the huge wins from the projects that actually took off, right? I think the 2017 ICO bubble was good. And not that I'm happy that people lost money on failed projects, but it also created things like Ethereum itself,
2: Yeah.
3: right? Like, Ethereum itself, even if that was the only ICO which ever brought any success, if every other single one failed, the return on capital, on just Ethereum, pays off all ICO investment 10x easily. And obviously, Ethereum is not the only project that has actually delivered and and provided value. Um, When railroads were a new thing, there was a huge speculative fever in railroads, right? Tons of people lost tons of money. And a railroad network got built, and it changed the entire character of the American West, right? When the the Internet bubble happened, tons of people lost tons of money in all sorts of stupid dot-coms. And the internet industry got built and completely changed the world. So I don't, I don't think we should look at bubbles as a problem to be solved. I think every individual should try to be responsible and diligent about what they invest their money in. And in a Darwinian sense, if you invest your money in stupid projects, you're going to lose it. right? And so that process is important. I think that's healthy. And we should be encouraging people to use better judgment and discretion in what they invest in instead of trying to convey that, that we need to protect the world from bubbles and speculation. So you're, yeah, you're, yep. <laughs> you're all getting
1: points, by the way, for using my evolutionary analogies. You were obviously listening to my speech. Thank you very much. you all doing a good job with that. Um, look, I, I, I've written about this myself. Like, I, I think the speculative bubble concept is fascinating. To Perez's theories on this are really interesting, right? And it's all this, this, this phases of technological boom and transformation that tend to these things. But just personally, I felt that last year was—it challenged my 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 views on that. I didn't, not that I wouldn't uh, embrace the ideas you're coming up with, Eric. But it felt like, oh my God, we did it again, right? And 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 what struck me was how easily manipulated people were into. And you said this before, Caitlin. The 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 word this is the illusion of decentralization, and therefore, hey, I'm going to invest in this completely centralized. Exchange and hand over all of my money and my tokens to this to Sam Bankman Fried when in fact this is not decentralized at all. But the capacity to dupe people with this, you know, aura of magic struck me as a real problem. How do we deal with that? How do we educate people to get to Eric's point about how individuals need to learn from this? To me, it feels like that's one of the most urgent challenges we face. What do you, would,
2: well, would, it, it's human nature. You're not going to, and this is what Niha was, was, was also referring to, I mean, you're not going to change human nature. And because human beings really are the constant in all this, and in all the historic bubbles, uh, that's, you're not going to change that, unfortunately. But one thing that, that, uh, that I've heard some discussion of at this event is great, which is AI is the next bubble. That's taking a little bit of pressure off us. Um, <laughs> and it's also great because the, what's going to be used in order to determine whether something is real or AI-generated on the Internet is back to Dr. Adam Back's hash cash idea. Basically, if somebody's willing to put real money behind something, then it's not spam email. That's his concept, and that was one of the building blocks of Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin is going to be used, right? We're gonna end up putting sats behind messages to determine whether it's the real Joe Rogan experience or the AI-generated one right? Um, And so this is actually going to end up being a great thing for us as an industry. But I don't think you can solve the the, the bubble problem. There will always be criminals. There will always be scammers. Uh, and, And this is one of the reasons why I lament that the United States is throwing the entire reasonable enabling regulation approach out with the bathwater because they're literally shoving everything offshore and into the unregulated shadow markets and rejecting those who tried to create a reasonable regulatory regime, because what that's going to do is, frankly, keep the regulators having to play whack-a-mole. They're going to keep finding places where it pops up and, and does come back to reverberate for the traditional financial industry. Um, And a lot of people, unfortunately, are going to get scammed again. I wish there were an easy solution to it.
3: I think there is a solution to it. Open source software is the solution to scams perpetrated by people in opaque financial systems. Everyone can see how Bitcoin works on the blockchain layer and on the code layer. This is an incredible achievement to create a money system that anyone in the world can look at and validate without any kind of credentials or, or permission. So all these regulations that exist in the world that try to create you know, financial transparency and end up just creating these complex uh, webs of opacity uh, is solved through the, the transparency of open source software. And I wish some of these regulators would actually say thank you to, 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 these, <laughs> <They don't. laughs> to these developers, these incredible talented engineers around the world that are actually yeah. building transparent, immutable financial software when none of the regulators who are paid by people's tax money have ever done it. But isn't... Look, I mean,
1: there are a lot of first adopters, first movers, who make an enormous amount of money out of being at the front of that wave, and then everybody else is invited to come along. So yes, maybe you should thank them, but there's an enormous reward that comes from this as well. And I think that... Remember, we have 8 billion people in this world who, a tiny sliver of them, are actually participating in this and benefiting from that. I mean, Nahar, I'd like you to unpack some of this because, I mean, there's two two things I want you to work with here. One is, you know, I'm very glad Caitlin raised AI. You work at an institution that is absolutely sort of tied in, (laughs) in its DNA, to the development of AI. And I think the Media Lab and the DCI as well very much for a very long time focused on how do we deal with this from a human perspective. So I think, first of all, like, can we create this evolutionary open source solution to solving this challenge of AI and and everything else? Is is blockchain, Bitcoin the solution to that? So that's the first thing, and I want to answer that, and I'll come back to the other question I want to put.
0: Yeah, so I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying that I really care a lot about this technology, and I think it's the future, or I I wouldn't work on it every day. I 100% agree that open-source software-based systems for the movement of value are going to transform the world and are incredibly important. Um, That said... I see it as my role in some ways to be a bit critical of the sort of super positive narrative. And I do that because I care a lot about this technology. So for example, open source software isn't helpful if no one's actually looking at it. And most of the GitHub repositories out there, except for some of the biggest projects, do not have enough eyeballs on them. There is not enough code review. There are not enough people who are doing the hard work day in, day out to actually look at this code, to make sure that there are no bugs, to review the code that's going in, it's a major problem in even the most popular software repositories. So while I believe in the vision of open source software, you know, sort of saving the world and, and being a way of rooting out all the scams, in practice, at least up until now, there just have not been enough resources that are being directed to that. So I don't know how to fix that problem, but I think it's something that we need to work on. When it when it comes to sort of you know, the future of this technology and how it's going to interact with AI. What I'm actually struck by, you know, over the past year is it seems like for chat, GPT and all of these AI systems that are being developed, it's really exciting. And I'm, I'm sure there's a bubble and I'm sure the bubble will be very productive. But it's been like incredible use case after incredible use case. Just like week after week, people are putting together systems that are actually making people's lives way more productive. And I think the challenge for me, when I look at the crypto world, and again, I want to stress, I'm actually really positive about all of this, but it's sort of my nature to be a little bit critical and to sort of poke and to say, how do we do better? When I look at the crypto world, when we think about other bubbles like the internet and railroads, there were massive amounts of value, real world value, not just speculative bubble value created out of those systems. People were actually able to move goods or to move packets or to build applications. And I just, it pains me that we haven't gotten as far as I want to get in the crypto world. We, we haven't gotten to you know, billions of users. We haven't gotten to you know, massive numbers of applications that are changing many people's lives. And it might be the case that we just need more time. It's been 14 years, but this stuff is really hard. This stuff is really, really hard, and we need to build a lot of layers, and we need to keep going. And that might be the case, in which case I say, great, let's keep going. But, um, I want to see us get to real-world value and real use cases, and a lot of users.
1: So you know, Eric was talking about you know, governments should be thanking uh, developers, but I mean, one other way to think about it is like our governments. And let's face it: for the for the vast majority of people who are not developers, who aren't facing this, the, the one system that they have that is supposed to protect their interests is this traditional concept of a government, uh, and that is just a reality of the world we live in. I mean if there were to be sufficient awareness and forward-thinking uh, enlightenment as perhaps amongst our, our leaders, one way to advance this technology would be to create the right regulatory framework to encourage it, to go back to a 1996 view perhaps of what the, what the internet should be and so forth. And, and, and Neha, just to back to you before, I'm going to get Caitlin in here, but like, yes, you, are, you took the option of working with the, with the Boston Fed to try to do this. So how important to you is the role of government in... Figuring out how do we optimize this technology from an open source perspective for the the public good?
0: So at the DCI, we sort of have two core tracks. So one is helping figure out how to design centralized digital money to be safer and to preserve privacy and to be more open and accessible. The other is to work on decentralized systems. And honestly, with the decentralized systems world, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about regulation because... That's not what we're doing. We're writing open source software for peer-to-peer transactions. And so uh, in my mind, that technology is, you know, we're not interested in the centralized actors of that world. Let me put it that way. Uh, You know, what I think is really powerful about this technology is the ability to give people the power to run the software they want, to verify their own financial transactions, to conduct peer-to-peer transactions. I'm not interested in centralized exchanges or custodians or all of those sort of actors in the decentralized world. That's not what I'm trying to build towards. I'm not trying to build those types of institutions. I'm trying to make it so that the software can replace the need for those types of institutions.
1: So, Kathleen, you as well are looking to work with government to support what you want to build and you haven't had the easiest of paths, let's say, but you're still fighting at it. There are others in this space who are just sort of like, like there's a number of different options, right? You can exit, certainly from the US, we're seeing that. You can litigate, which we're also seeing. Uh, and, or you can sit down and work and try to work it all out. Like, what, what, what's the pathway?
2: Uh, well, those of us who did try to sit down and work it all out were the ones who were skewered the worst. Uh, and it's not just me, of course, um, at, at Custodia, it was. Look at what's happened with Coinbase and Paxos, right? It, um, it, it seems that they, they deliberately are saying, stay the f away, literally. Um, because that is the message that they are sending by those of us who did approach them for permission and said, we will do, uh, we will only do what we have permission from you to do. And, and literally hitting everybody with denials, um, uh, subpoenas, uh, Wells notices, and lawsuits from the regulators against some of the players in this industry. Uh, boy, that is designed to be a shoot the stallion to scatter the herd message to try to keep everybody else away. Um, and and you know, it, it was a choice they made. They certainly had the opportunity to work with multiple of us. Now, what's in the grand scheme of things, should the users of Bitcoin, for example, think about what's happening? It shouldn't matter to you. <laughs> the Bitcoin blockchain is still appending blocks. Um, ultimately, a yeah, exactly, ultimately though, you know, why is it that people were trying to build services around this? It gets to what Eric was saying. We want people to ultimately be able to use these technologies peer to peer and have the ability to keep those, to self custody your assets so that you can use them organically peer to peer. The challenge is the vast majority of people, as you point out, are not doing that. They don't have the skill set. Right now, today, Eight eight billion people in the world could download the Lightning Network software and start transacting in fiat currencies that are collateralized by sats. It's easy to do. There are Lightning channels right now that anyone in the world could use to create a US dollar and transact in a US dollar without permission. Um, Why is it that eight billion people are not doing this? The answer is they're not doing it yet and I'm very confident that they will be doing it. And it's just a matter of time, and it's the engineers who I've always said are the most important people in this industry, not those of us who are trying to create services or dealing with regulators. It's the engineers who are creating the most important piece, which is how do you get that technology out to the eight billion people in the world who have a cell phone and, and could start transacting today if they knew how to use the command line interface or if they had access to easier UX.
0: Something I want to point out really fast, maybe a lot of people don't know this, the networks as they exist today cannot handle eight billion people using them in a non-custodial fashion. We need real serious engineering breakthroughs to make that work. Okay. We need to fund the engineers to make those. So breakthroughs. how do
1: you okay, get But like, how do we accelerate that? And by that I mean, what is the incentive structure to allocate the resources to make sure that that is resolved.
0: Well, I think I mean, the first step is letting people know. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> Bitcoin cannot also may be that we need,
1: we need government either to get out of the way or to direct us in this direction. And Eric, you've had all sorts of relationships with regulators over the years and done ups and downs. And, <laughs> you know, just close us out here. Like, what, what, what is
3: the right way to approach government right now? I think I know what you're gonna say, by the way, but I want you to say it. (laughs) What is is the right way to approach government? Um, I think society is suffering from a serious case of Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) And I think uh, right now, all of you in the audience are having your money stolen from your bank account and you don't even realize it. It's being printed by central banks. It's going to the financial system. They buy their yachts and their houses and you sit here wondering why you struggle all year long and you barely get by. You're being robbed, you're being robbed. Crypto is an alternative to that system and it is a voluntary alternative to that system. So all that we really need to do for this to work is keep building, like that's it. Over time, like you see this industry growing, consensus was not this big five years ago. It is growing, it's working. Um, People realize when they're being abused eventually, and when they have an alternative at the margins, they will move to it. And we're seeing that happen. We should be very proud of that. And we should stop asking government for permission to fix the problems that government has created. (laughs) Okay. That's a pretty good note to end it. A round of
1: applause for this tremendous panel, everybody. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait.
0: AutoTrader.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.